0: Hosanna, a fellowship with
1: Christians. Well, good morning to those online waking up and watching us and whoever's going to watch us later. But uh, good morning. Welcome. Um, we just ask that you can come on in. I know you're out there talking right now, but uh, come on in. We, we'd love to have you in the sanctuary here. Be great. All right. Well, we're, we're glad you're here to worship with us today, and uh, we're going to start out with a, a pretty... Uh, I don't know. I like a pretty exciting song in my mind, but uh, here we go. We're going to keep continue to worship, but I was excited because I see this little girl standing out there. and She's just singing and, and praising the Lord and not caring about what anybody else thinks. And uh, it's very exciting and, and very warming to my heart to see that someone can express themselves like that. And hopefully that we can all remember that we're, we're allowed to do that. We are allowed to express ourselves in worship, and there's nothing wrong. So just, just be a, let that be a reminder to you. I'm not telling you you have to do anything that you don't want to do. But just remind yourself that you're allowed to be excited. You're allowed to, to worship. You're allowed to sing. You're allowed to just sit there as well, which is fine. But just remember that, that God, you know, really is excited to see when you're worshiping and when you're, you're excited to worship for him and with him. Hugs and kisses to everybody. Becky's grandma Landis used to always do that and it just reminded me of her. And uh, we miss her as well. And uh, just hugs and kisses to everybody.
2: So it's a little hard, I don't know, for you, but for me to switch gears from that into announcements and things, but let's just continue worship, and I'm just going to pray for, for the offering as the worship team vacates. <laughs> Not that they need to. They can keep playing if you'd like. Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I maybe you shouldn't have said that. Maybe next time. <laughs> Well, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that we can always trust in you. You are abundant, God, and out of your great mercy, you've given us so much. And we give you this offering today, and with it, we worship you, and we give our whole selves to you. Please now take it and use it for your kingdom and for your glory. And may it be a great blessing to many. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So announcements, first of all, when we pulled into the parking lot this morning, it was like, wow, the parking lot crew should take care of the roads in Lancaster County, in my opinion, (laughs) because talk about clear parking lot. Even with all that blowing and drifting, the parking lot was clear this morning. So thank you to all of those. I don't know who you are. Any of you here sitting here? Okay. Ever you are, I don't know, but thank you so much. Seriously, from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, just a couple more announcements for you. The adult class message discussion group will meet following the service at 1115 in the fellowship hall. And we also have an open spot on the mowing team. So if you are interested in mowing with a zero turn mower. Okay, I'm pretty sure that I would be deadly on that. Uh, I did, I have to just say, I did mow for one time. Uh, years ago when I didn't have a job, I, I mowed and I had this mower and anyway, I ran it into the woods and, I, and my boss at the time was my husband and I tried to tell him, I tried to tell him it was the mower (laughs) he wasn't buying that he did he did get me unstuck and got me out of the woods but anyway anyway i will not be the person that will be doing the zero turn but if you are interested and hopefully i didn't scare you off uh once a month is all that they're asking for you can contact um kyle stare or call the church office and i also just want to say that after the service today elders will be available for prayer and with that, I turn it over to Tony and Joanne.
3: Thanks, Julie. Yay, worship team! Wow. I think I was just smiling the whole way through that, just enjoying, enjoying that. Yay, you, for being here. Yay, you, online, for being here. But these guys, like, had it tougher. <laughs> Took some work to get here this morning with the roads the way they are. And uh, I assume there's more of you online than normal, because there's fewer of us in the building than normal. We expected that. And, of that, course,
4: but, uh, losing an hour of sleep last night.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Wake up! Okay. Everybody who's, who's uh, tuning in from in bed. Um, anyway, I'm glad to have you. <laughs> oh, there's one on the loose. <laughs> Just so good to see you all here this morning and see the smiles on your faces. Mm-hmm. Some of you know, particularly if you're a Facebook friend of mine, that uh, I'm a historian. a professional and all that. Uh, I I don't get to do too much with that, but these past few weeks, I've been spending pretty much every spare moment, not on Facebook, but eagerly looking into a fascinating historical mystery. There's this guy named John, who was 18 years old, living in Southern Virginia in the Civil War 170 years ago. And when he turned 18, he volunteered to fight. But here's part of the mystery. He volunteered to fight for the Union Army. Not the Confederate Army. He was in Southern Virginia. Why did he do that? It took an awful lot of guts. I'd like to know. Many people found that, well, sometimes they were murdered when they did that. They lost their families. They couldn't go back home after the war. They had to settle down someplace else and start life all over again. And and John did too. John didn't go back home. He settled in West Virginia. He became a farmer. He got married. He had four kids in four years. And then he disappeared. Mm-hmm. I've discovered this 20, over 25 years ago now. Where did he go? There's no grave. There's no death records. He just disappears from the historical record. So I went looking for him. and I found him. <laughs> <laughs> I got so excited about this. Ten years after the war, he went back to his hometown. It must have been safe for him to do that by then. And he, for all appearances, mm-hmm. he just... Abandoned his wife and his four kids in West Virginia and started life over again back in Virginia in his hometown. He found work. He got remarried. He had four more children and then five more after that. And when he finally died, his family Mm -hmm. noted his Civil War service to the Union on his tombstone. This was 1920. Apparently, by that point, it was part of his identity that he wanted Mm -hmm. to be noticed when he was dead and gone. I've been there, I've seen that tombstone live. Who was this guy, really? What would make an otherwise brave person, brave enough to stand up against this whole community, what would make a person like that abandon relationships and responsibilities the way he did? Now this one is of particular interest to me because 60 years ago, my grandfather did the exact same thing. He walked away from a wife and four kids, including my mom, to start over again in another state. But this story gets even more. Now, this is intriguing, right? This is a little bit of a mystery. But it gets even more personal to me because my grandfather is, do you follow this, is the grandson of John, this 18-year-old boy in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. This guy I'm researching is my great-great-grandfather. And my grandfather, Dexter, was one of those four children who's dead Uh, the son of one of those four children whose dad walked out on them in 1875. This is genealogy. This is not just history. It's family. It explains a bit of why I am the way I am. We have multiple generations Uh of this kind of trauma in my family that explains some patterns that developed over the years. And and by the way, their DNA is in my body. Mm -hmm. John and Dexter and the ones in between, and the story is interesting in between too. I am their descendant. And their story has impacted my story. Mm-hmm. And yet, not entirely, right? I am not John. I am not Dexter. Who am I really?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I have my own chapter of that story to write, and I have my own choices in life to make, and I have my own identity. And so do all of you. Yep. So, what do we mean by identity then? The word gets thrown around a lot in our culture, it means different things to different people. It may be helpful to think of identity like like layers of clothing we wear, particularly when it's cold outside. Yeah. Uh, so far in March, that analogy was kind of missed on us, but there is suddenly it's cold outside again. We put layers on today. My sweater is down here on the, on the, on the, the chair, it's called. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or identity is like the layers of clothing. It's also like the name tags that we choose. We put perhaps on the top layer with well, the name tags that we choose to accept from others when they come and put those names on us. I'll give you another example. I'll be a personal here with you. I was named Anthony. I never forgive my dad for that. But I, I was called that the whole time growing up and into my adulthood. But when a certain prime minister got himself elected, I realized that becoming Tony Blair would make life easier for me in some respects. So I made that change. Which is why you all know me as Tony, but everyone I knew before 1997 still calls me Anthony. (laughs) Poor Carol had to make the switch midstream here. (laughs) Okay, a name is just a name. But it's also an aspect of our identity, right? Mm -hmm. What we want to be called, I really pay attention to that. What do people want to be called? There are other layers of identity, too. You know all this race and gender and ethnicity and nationality and sexual identity and political affiliation, physical appearance, ability, these are the things that to a greater degree or lesser degree define us to others and the kind of things that we love to argue about in our culture. Mm -hmm. Another layer consists of the roles that we inhabit or that we choose, like family roles. I'm a grandson, obviously, a son, a brother, a brother-in-law, a husband, a father, a grandfather, I'm a cousin. All of those roles in my family, I probably missed a few. I am also then, I also have roles by occupation. I'm a pastor. I'm a professor. I am, I, my day job, I just allude to once in a while, but don't often say it, I'm a seminary president. Mm-hmm. I have to go to work and deal with that. I started this by saying I'm a historian. What I'm doing is claiming those as part of my identity. Yeah. And I have all of that wrapped up in me, plus other aspects that only those close to me know. And all of those things, when you combine them into me, make me a unique human being. There's only one of me, Then all God's people said. Amen. And there's only one of you, and thank God there is. (laughs) And I don't mean that sarcastically. (laughs) And yet, and yet, again, you all know this. There are other people, sometimes billions of other people, who share at least one or more pieces of my identity. Mm-hmm. And everyone else, including all of you, share at least one critical layer with me. We're all human.
0: Yep.
3: Underneath the layers, do you know this? We share 99.9% of our DNA with each other. Yep. Isn't that amazing? It's astonishing how much fussing we've done over the centuries because of that 0.1% where we're a little bit different from each other. Well, that common identity we have as human beings is not just because we have a common ancestry. It's not just because somewhere 300 greats ago, you know, the great-grandparents ago or something, we have a common ancestor. It's because we have a common creator. We have one who has made us in his own image and likeness. We have a creator with whom we share a spiritual DNA, if you, if you will, somehow, someone that we somehow resemble. And underneath all the layers, this is the core. So if we want to figure out how to discover our truest identity, and who hasn't wanted to do that? It's Mm -hmm. a reason that the ancestry and these other things are are, are, millions of people have joined them. Trying to figure out at least a bit of my identity. There's a reason that identity is one of the biggest hot-button topics in our world today. If we want to discover our truest Mm -hmm. identity, we would do best to start here. Who we are in relationship with God. God. And when we do, guess what we find out? Guess what we discover there? Gospel. Yeah. Good news. It's our theme for the year. Last week we started a new teaching series exploring some of the deeper meanings and implications of gospel. Uh, Last yeah. week it was about gospel with ashes. And yeah. thank you, by the way, for yeah. engaging that kind of unusual different service as we lamented together ourselves and our world. Mm. Well, this is one of them too identity. Knowing the best, knowing our best and our truest identity is truly good news. And us living out of that identity is also good news for others. So hang with us for a few moments as we explore that. You
4: know, during my master's program, I took a course in which we talked about identity a lot, right? We looked at how these various aspects of our identity that Tony's describing, how those aspects are formed through a very complex combination of factors, and and how the ways that we each uniquely experience and interpret all of those factors affects our sense of who we think we're supposed to be and what what we're told we're supposed to do. And with so many often contradictory stories and standards and experiences, you know, echoing inside of us, it's no wonder so many of us struggle to know who we really are. But we also discovered in that class what Tony was just saying, that somewhere inside each of us, if we're willing to very slowly, very intentionally move through layer after layer of, I- of our identity, you know, like a nesting doll, we can finally find our core identity. We can discover the truest story, the realest reality of who we are. And the even better news is that the Bible gives us an example of this in Jesus' life. The moment when his core identity was revealed. He was standing on the shore of the Jordan River. Behind him, about 30 years of obscurity in Nazareth where he lived a very ordinary life, being prepared for the moment when he would leave home and family and all that was familiar to him and journey to the edge of the most holy river in Israel, the river that Moses had led Egypt's former slaves to, and then the river that Joshua led God's free people through into the Promised Land. See, in order to enter, God's people had to let go of that old false slave identity. And for 40 years, do the work. That hard work of believing and receiving the truth about who they really were. Well, Jesus was was standing on the shore of that river and he stepped into that river. And then he moved toward the wild figure standing before him, his cousin John, the baptizer. John, who'd been preparing the way for the one who would lead them all and lead us all through the waters of the Jordan. Mark tells us in his gospel, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. It is so interesting that God's plan for Israel's freedom had rested on the first Joshua. And Joshua in Hebrew means Yeshua, that's that's the Greek word, I mean, excuse me, that's the Hebrew word, Yeshua. Yeshua. So God's plan for Israel's freedom rested on the first Joshua and here in Jesus. It's so interesting that God's plan for the freedom of the whole world rested on the last Joshua. You know Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, went into the water Unknown to everybody around him. They didn't know who he was. He's just a person in the crowd like you or me. He went down under the water, but he arose from that water, and the heavens opened, and the Spirit descended, and the voice of God announced his identity, his core identity, for all to hear. You are mine. You are loved. You are. Well-pleasing, literally. You give me such delight. But notice something. See this, The Bible just, just lays all this stuff out. Had Jesus done anything to deserve that? That we know of? No. Scripture doesn't record anything that Jesus had done in 30 years. Except when he was... 12. At the temple with the elders. Told me no. It's interesting, isn't it? That the revealing of Jesus' core identity wasn't based in anything he did. It wasn't based on performance, earning, none of it. The revealing of his core identity was the celebration of his being, of who he really was. And you know what? Those who follow Jesus through these waters get to leave behind this world of selfishness and hatred and enslavement. And like the children of Israel following the first Joshua, we get to follow the last Joshua into the promised land of God's kingdom, of self-giving love and shared delight and freedom we get to hear God's voice drowning out all the echoes of the past, inviting us to let go of all those old stories about who we were supposed to be and follow him, listen, in a new exodus led by a new Joshua into a new creation where God reveals our true core identity just as he did for Jesus. And what is that identity? 100%, not even 0.1% left over. All human beings. You are mine, you are loved, and you are pleasing to me. I find such delight in you. As we continue to, to think about this together, I want to read a beautiful blessing because we forget, don't we? It's like I'm saying this and I'm knowing that every one of you already knows this here, but we often we forget. Here's a beautiful blessing that can really help us to remember again and again who and whose we really are. It's called beginning with beloved. Begin here, beloved. Is there any other word need saying? Any other blessing could compare with this name, this knowing. Beloved, comes like a mercy to the ear that has never heard it. Comes like a river to the body that has never seen such grace. Beloved, comes wholly to the heart, aching to be new comes healing to the soul wanting to begin again. Beloved, keep saying it, and though it may sound strange at first, watch how it becomes part of you, how it becomes you, as if you never could have known yourself anything else, as if you could ever have been other than this. Beloved,
3: it's true you know when you know that to be true when you feel it when you know it to your core to your core identity yeah. life is never the same yeah we are loved we are his yeah. we are pleasing maybe something you can do today is to go look in a mirror and say it in the first person singular Yes. I am loved I am his I am pleasing already. Don't do except for everything else. And there's all of us have the everything else already. Yeah. So also notice something else that's cool about this story. The spirit of God descending on him. It says like a dove because whoever's writing this down, Matthew and Mark, both have versions of it, are trying to find something to compare, something <laughs> earthly to compare this to. Uh, But this is how the dove imagery has entered, uh, has has become part of how we understand the Spirit. It's a beautiful picture of the Father and the Spirit affirming the Son in His human form, Jesus.
5: Yeah.
3: And you know what? The Spirit's presence continued with Jesus. We'll pick that up next week. It linked Son to Father in loving intimacy throughout the rest of His ministry for eternity. Yeah. Which is exactly the same way the Spirit continues with us. In him we live and move and have our being. Paul explained it later. And of course, we know the rest of the story. What John the Baptist could not have known on that day, that, that later the spirit would come in even more intimate form, not merely to rest upon us, but to dwell within us, all of us who are in Christ.
5: Yeah.
3: <coughs> all of us, including you and me.
2: Yeah.
3: Let's also notice how we're, what John realized in that moment. Because John is the one doing the baptizing. John is the one who's a little bit caught off guard by all this is going on. He's been baptizing all day, perhaps. He's been baptizing for weeks and for months. People lining up to get into the muddy waters of the Jordan River. I've been there. I've touched the waters of the Jordan River. It's not that big of a deal. (laughs) But in that moment, in that baptism, something breaks through for John as well, which was who Jesus really was. He knew that there was something special about him. He had said something like that before he came up to him. But Jesus says, I need to be baptized by you. And in that awesome moment when the heavens open up and this voice affirms and proclaims when the spirit descends, John pointed to Jesus and he said, declare boldly, I know who you are now. Look, look. It's it's gospel to everybody around him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one we've been waiting for. And then John shared more of his gospel. This was his testimony. This is what he had experienced, what he saw with his own eyes. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Remain. Not just visit, remain on him. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Yeah. We all have a testimony like that. Yep. You know, because what's cool is that you in realizing Jesus' identity, John discovered his own. He discovered it at that moment. He discovered what relationship he had with Jesus, what role he was to play in his story. Our story will be different. The moment will be different. The moment may be a long period of time, actually, for us. But but many of us here have had a similar kind of experience when we finally realized who Jesus was. And in that moment, also realized a bit more of who we are and why it matters how we find our own identity in him how we find our own story in his now this doesn't like occur once and you know everything's all figured out for the rest of our (laughs) lives like most of the rest of us john struggled at times to stay Mm -hmm. with that knowing Mm -hmm. on that moment at baptism he pinned a name tag on jesus (laughs) oh i'm the messiah he's the messiah he's the chosen one and it was true but here's the thing. Jesus didn't always act the way that John expected a Messiah to act. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had anybody do that to you? <laughs> I expect you to behave in a certain way because I've labeled you.
4: Uh huh. Ooh. It happens to me all the time.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Things were happening to John that he didn't expect or understand. Mm-hmm. If Jesus is the Messiah and I'm the forerunner, then what the heck am I doing in prison? This isn't the way that the Messiah is supposed okay. to work, right? Right. So one day out of prison, he sends some friends to ask Jesus. A good question. I'm glad he asked it. Um, <clears throat> Jesus, um, are, are you the Messiah? Really? <laughs> I mean, was I wrong? Are you the Messiah we've been expected, or should we keep looking for someone else? I'm not so sure anymore. Yeah. And Jesus sends back this marvelous message. We don't get all the details, but assuring him all over again, yes, yes, John, you were right. Yes, John, what you saw was for real. Yes, John, the Father has confirmed it. The Spirit is with me. I am the one that was promised. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, John trusted that gospel all the way to his own death. Yeah, He put his life on the line for that knowing of Jesus' identity and his own.
4: Yeah. John continued to trust what he'd experienced in that moment in the Jordan River with Jesus when his... Yes to Jesus was, was confident and clear. Even when he doubted. Even when his yes became a momentary yes but. See, even then, he knew, he knew some things. He knew that he was alive only because his mother and father, you know, old Zechariah and Baron Elizabeth, that, that his parents had chosen Chosen to say yes to God's promise that they would have a son and name him John. Oh, yeah, he knew. He knew something like Tony was saying early, earlier, something. The stories of his identity of and of Jesus' identity. He knew the stories about how Jesus came to be. How his family Not only his parents, but his family kept saying yes to God even when it seemed impossible. Like when cousin Mary was told that she'd be the mother of the Messiah and her response was, yes, may everything you have said happen to me. May it be so. And then Mary's betrothed husband, Joseph, also said yes to fathering Mary's baby even though he and everyone knew that it wasn't his child. Yeah, all of this is gospel, all of this is good news, because it shows us that our identity is both revealed to us and that it's chosen by us. See, all these folks were given a choice whether they wanted to say yes to the specific ways that God asked each of them to live out their true identity as part of the larger story. They could have said no. See, it's not a real choice if Mary couldn't have said no. It's not not real. They could have said no. And their core identity would not have changed. God's love and delight in them would not have changed, even if they said no. It's so hard for us, isn't it? And yet, yeah, it's, it's reality. And still, you know, even if we say no, even though God's longing for our yes, he stays with us. His love remains. His delight remains. Listen, not only so his purposes can be completely fulfilled in the world. Yes, God wants that. But also so that we can experience the joy of partnering with him, of our own free will. He doesn't want slaves. He wants partners for us to join him and the Trinity, partner with him in the restoration of our own lives and identity and in the restoration of our world. And you know what? It is like John the Baptist. It's okay if at times all we have for God is a yes, but as long as there's a willingness to trust, right? That is all God needs. Paul joyfully told the Corinthians this for all of God's promises have already been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, Jesus, yes. And through Christ, through his yes, our amen, which actually means yes, maybe so. Through Christ, our amen ascends to God for his glory. Do you see that? When our yes yes joins with God's yes, there's an opening. When Mary's yes joined with the yes of God, there's an opening for the Messiah, for Jesus to be born. It's true for all of us. Yes, that's a spectacular calling. But even in the hiddenness and obscurity of our lives, our yeses, when they meet Jesus, yes, there's an opening. Today, let's choose to trust this reality that Jesus has really already fulfilled every promise of God. Every promise is fulfilled for us. God says yes. And let's choose today To join our yes, may it be so, our amen, with his yes, so that God's glorious purposes may be done in us and on earth as it is in heaven.
3: Amen. Amen. So let's get practical with this in our own lives a little bit. How then do we live out of who we are? If we get a sense of what our identity is, if we find our identity like John the Baptist did in that revelatory moment when we realize who Jesus is and our relationship with him, when we say yes to his amen how do we live that out now it may help be helpful here to change the metaphor a little bit i said before the identity is like layers of clothing let's think now of identity as a story Mm -hmm. margaret atwood the novelist said in the end we'll all become stories
0: Mm -hmm.
3: it's true isn't it i've been going to a lot of funerals lately yes (laughs) we tell stories of somebody at a funeral appropriately so when I'm doing this genealogy report, I'm not just reporting what I'm writing up about my great-great grandfather and his family. I'm not just re- reporting the bare facts. I'm telling a story. It's a story about a life that was lived. And Confused?
4: that's what—that's what the Bible is, isn't it? Exactly. It's all of the
3: stories. One big all story of a whole bunch of stories. That's what we are. We're Nine billion or how many people there are on the earth? All these individual stories that are connected to one. Identity is more than a name tag. It's more than a declaration. Identity is what compels our behavior. I don't want to hear what you say when I'm looking at your behavior. I'm to, I, I want to see what you do. That tells me who you think you are. Identity determines our choices, or at least gives us a choice. Mm-hmm. An identity writes a story that God and others and ourselves can read. We read the story of your life yeah. through the way that you live it. So what kind of story is it? Or a better question for what we're doing this morning. What kind of story could it be? Mm-hmm. What kind of story is God inviting you to write with your life? We'll, we'll suggest a couple answers. First, let's, let's live a story that's consistent. Yeah. One in which our outward behavior is integrated with the identity we claim.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That's what integrated, integral, they're connected, they're related, they're the same thing. Now, we know what the opposite of this, of this is, don't we? We call it hypocrisy. Which is a great word. It's one of those words in the Bible that just has this really cool meaning. It's from the Greek word for wearing a mask. No, don't think medical masks. I'm not going there. It's the ones that they wore in the theaters. Actors in the ancient Greek plays were called hypocrites, and it wasn't a criticism. That was just what they were. They were playing somebody in that drama that they were not. Mm. Now, so Jesus comes along and 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 uses that word. He has a lot to say about people who claim to be one thing and then act contrary to it, right? Mm -hmm. Pharisees were particularly guilty of this, and he called them on it again and again and again. And, of course, there's a temptation in our own lives to call out the hypocrisies of others. We can Mm -hmm. see it. Unless we jump on our high horse too quickly, we're all hypocrites, aren't we? We all act out in ways that are different than the identity that we claim, different than who we want to be, different than who maybe we even think we are at the core. We all have to come to terms with the fact that our stories have not been fully consistent. Now, here's the good news, and maybe the bad news too. The fact that we have all been hypocrites at times doesn't mean that we should stay so. Because our inconsistencies cost us something. And they often cost others something. I'm thinking of an example that I probably shared here before. It isn't in my notes, my apologies for this. But this, this was one I read years ago that just amused me but also hit me. It's a, um, Scott Adams, who wrote the Dilbert strip, wrote a couple of books as well. And he talks about one day he, he had ordered a new phone. Uh, online, and it arrived at his house, and he had to put the pieces together, and he put them together and it didn 't and he turned it on, and it didn 't come on and He was so convinced that he had been you know sold some shoddy stuff it belonged to it, it belonged to one of the major retailers, so he hopped in his car and angrily drove all the way across town to the retail store, walked in huffing and puffing up to the counter, laid it there, and said, "Your phone doesn 't work <laughs> and the young Geek behind the counter, (laughs) looks at it, turns around, opens the back, looks at the battery, takes the battery out, flips it over, puts it in the way it was supposed to be all along, closes it, turns it on, and hands it back. And Scott Adams says, you know... At that moment, I was an idiot. <laughs> he uses the word. I was an idiot all the way across town. I'm glad I didn't kill anybody in that moment of idiocy. And what his point was, we're all idiots sometimes. Some of us just hang out there longer than others.
0: <laughs>
3: we're all hypocrites sometimes. Some of us choose to hang out there longer than others. Some of us choose to wake up yeah. and see the disjunction this, this mm-hmm. this, this, between our behavior and who we are. And we ask God to heal that part of us. There's actually a freedom and a joy in living a consistent, integrated life. And that's why I'm not doing this as a burden on your shoulders. I'm not out here putting fingers, you dirty, lousy, filthy hypocrites. You know, clean yourself up. It's an invitation. It's a gift. It's a gift to be received and lived out and celebrated to become more integrated in who we are. I'm sorry, Joanne. One more little detour. Could we back up a sli- to the slide where the uh, it says identity is a choice to be revealed and chosen? This this uh, the young woman with the mask. I love this image. If we can't find it, it's okay. There it is. That's awesome because I love that. I saw several like this. This one you cannot tell whether she's taking that mask off or putting that mask on. Can you? Mm-hmm. See, this is the moment of choice and decision. Mm-hmm. We all have the masks that we've created. We've all, ha- all had our fake identities, the hypocrisies. But in that moment, she's choosing whether that has come off and it's going to stay off or whether to put it back on. Yeah. That's the moment we live in. It's a beautiful moment when grace is present. Anyway, I'll yeah. shut up.
4: Well, first, now I forgot your point. <laughs> How do we live out our identities? <laughs> And the stories. Well, first point, live in a way that's integrated and... Consistent. Consistent. I got into that story. Um, Second, we can live realize that we're living a story that's still being written. All right? Each of us, we know this. We've got parts of our life stories that we like. Those are the chapters that we'd be happy to read out loud for all to hear all day, any day. But we also have pages and chapters in our life stories that we want no one to know anything about, right? And there's still, even with that, that's looking back, looking forward, there's still so much of the story yet to be lived. But you know what matters most here is the way we interpret our lives. Because the story we tell about ourselves has a lot to do with our identity. I'm an English major, spent lots and lots and lots of time sitting in classrooms with fellow students who have read the same novels, who've, we've read the same literature. And we're coming with all these different interpretations. You know, and so part of this is, what does the author mean? What was the author meaning here? Interpretation of our stories. It has a lot to do with our identity. In the Ignatian Exercises, there is a beautiful invitation to prayer. The person who's journeying for months through all of this this journey with Jesus um, in prayer is given an invitation to say, ask God to tell you the story of how he created you in love and how he's been loving you through your whole life. Ask God to tell you the story. See, Hearing the story from God's perspective, it is an amazing thing to watch as people are praying that and they're actually taking the time to let God tell them their story. And it, hearing the story from God's perspective, it can take a while, but it's worth it because that story is transformational. See, when God tells us our story, it begins when? Not in the moment we were born, it begins in eternity before we were born. Our stories begin in the heart of God, who knew exactly who he wanted us to be, who knit us together in our mother's wombs. He knew who he was knitting us to become. And then, yes, when we were finally born physically, God rejoiced over us in love. If you imagine Jesus there in the nursery, and you're wrapped in your little blanket, and Jesus is there looking at you saying, you finally come. You are mine. You are loved. And you bring me such delight. And you haven't done one thing yet except lay there in your little blanket. See, when God tells us our stories, we hear the whole story. About how he's always been with us even when we couldn't see him. How he's always been providing for us even when we didn't think we'd have enough about how every moment, every page, every chapter of our lives, even the ones we'd never, ever want to live through again, all of it is of great value to him because all of it was somehow forming us more more and more fully into his likeness and image, into our true God-given selves. When God tells us our stories, He tells it as it truly was. He tells it as it truly is. Why? So that we might see him and see ourselves clearly and then marvel at how his grace continues to work all things together, even the worst things, working them together for good in our lives so that we can choose then to live so fully in his love that we write the rest of the story together, moment by moment, day by day, page by page, chapter by chapter, from now to when we step over into eternity again. See, our lives, our, our stories are still being written. And we can choose to live so fully in his love that we become the sacred stories of Christ's love and grace, of his redemption and restoration, that are those stories, like Tony told you some stories about his great-great-grandfather, we can become the stories that our children will tell our grandchildren and our grandchildren will tell their grandchildren. And it's never too late. It is never too late for your story to become God's story. If, like Margaret Atwood said, if in the end we all become story, let's choose now to make them the most beautiful, inspiring, redemptive, hope filled love stories that they can possibly be.
3: Yes, and amen. Uh-huh. Finally, we can live a story that's gospel, a story that looks and sounds like good news yeah. to those who are watching us in real time. Or even those like me who would discover our story in future generations. <laughs> what were they up to then? Why did Tony behave the way he did? <laughs> Is there any good news in that story? Yeah. That doesn't mean that the story has to be perfect, by the way. It can't be. I'm so tired of having this conversation. My apologies. <laughs> Encouraging people to say, who are saying, I can't witness for Christ. I can't be, be, talk about gospel or be gospel because look at me. I've got, all, I got this problem, and I do this, and I've done this. No. It, can't. it doesn't mean about a perfect story. The best gospel stories are those who, that are, just like Joanne just said, redemptive and restorative. Stories about how we come in with fits and starts, detours and distractions along the way to a fuller understanding of who we are in a fuller life as we live out what is true. Yeah. That feels like gospel. not a perfect story that everything's all niched up nice and pretty and you never did anything wrong and you don't have any issues and you don't have any doubts and you don't have any struggles. No, be redemptive and restorative in the world. People are startled to see that. Redemption and restoration are at the heart of the gospel, and they are at the heart of this church. Yep. We're not going to pretend here we're all broken people who all are all over time being transformed, if yes. we accept the invitation, being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Transformation is the good news. Yes. The transformation comes from grace, only grace, always grace. And so we will be continually, persistently leaning into grace here for grace is gospel. Yeah. This is our identity, not just at Hosanna. This is our identity because we are in Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. Yes. Amen?
4: Amen. Amen. We've been saying amen a lot through this message, I noticed.
3: (laughs) I got some passion on this We're joining
4: our amen with Jesus, yes, and there's an opening. Oh, yeah. Well, we want to close this morning with a a true story. An inspirational, transformational, beautiful, inspiring story. It's a story um, written by Jan Richardson that pulls together a lot of these threads that we've been talking about identity, but pulls them together in a profound and unforgettable way. Jan Richardson writes, (coughs) Fayette It's the name of a woman who's haunted me for years and whom I've never met. I first learned of her in a story told by Janet Wolfe, pastor of a Methodist church in Nashville, Tennessee. This church is a wildly diverse congregation that includes, as Janet has described it, people with power and PhDs and folks who have never gone past the third grade, folks with two houses and folks living on the streets, and as one person who struggles with mental health declared, those of us who are crazy and those who think they're not. <laughs> I love that. Years ago, a woman named Fayette found her way to that church. Fayette lived with mental illness and lupus and without a home. She joined, joined the new members class. The conversation about baptism as Janet puts it, this holy moment when we're named by God's grace with such power, it won't come undone. Baptism especially grabbed Fayette's imagination. During the class, Fayette would ask again and again, When I'm baptized, I am, and the class learned to respond, Beloved, precious child of God, and beautiful to behold. Oh, yes she'd say. And then we could go back to our discussion. The day of Fayette's baptism came. She went under and came up sputtering and cried, and now I am? And we all sang, beloved, precious child of God and beautiful to behold. Oh, yes, she shouted. as she danced all around the fellowship hall. Two months later, Janet received a phone call. Fayette had been beaten and raped and was at the county hospital. So I went. I could see her from a distance, pacing back and forth. When I got to the door, I heard, I am beloved. She turned saw me and said, I am beloved, precious child of God. And catching sight of herself in the mirror, hair sticking up, blood and tears streaking her face, dress torn, dirty and rebuttoned askew, she started again. I am beloved, precious child of God. And she looked in the mirror again and declared, and God's still working on me. If you come back tomorrow, I'll be so beautiful, I'll take your breath away. Beloved, the voice from heaven had proclaimed as the baptismal waters of the Jordan rolled off Jesus' body. Beloved, the the voice named him as he prepared to begin his public ministry. Beloved, spoken with such power that it would permeate Jesus' entire life and teaching. Beloved, he would name those he met who were desperate for healing, for inclusion, for hope beloved, echoing through the ages, continuing to name those drenched in the waters of his baptism, beloved child of God, Fayette, beloved, precious child of God and beautiful to behold, haunts me, blesses me, goes with me. She challenges me to ask what it means that like her, with her, I have been named by God's grace with such or that it won't come undone. As I remember the baptism of Jesus, how will I reckon with the fact that I, that we, have shared in those waters, that as members of the body of Christ, we too are named as beloved children of God? And how will we live in such a way that others will know themselves as named by God? Beloved by God, especially those who have been given cause to think they are less than loved and less than children of the one who created them. In the coming days, may the waters of our baptism into Christ so cling to us that in their depths we see who we really are. And from our depths, we reflect to others their true identity. Loved, precious child of God. So beautiful to behold. And the people of God say, Amen. 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 May it be so. Amen, folks. Let's live it. Amen. Thank you and, for being you.
3: And by the way, if anybody here would like to... Uh... Be baptized we'd love to have a baptismal service yes. later this spring just let us know
0: yep